Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. Grab your copy of God's Word. Go with me to Isaiah chapter... Six, Isaiah chapter 6. Have you ever had one of those dreams that was so vivid, so lucid, so powerful that when you wake up, it takes you a few minutes to determine, was that real or was it just a dream? I mean, I've woke up wishing, haven't you, that what I just dreamed was real. I don't know if this is like a preacher thing or not, but probably one of the most vivid dreams that I remember having that was a good dream as far as a vivid dream. I dreamt that I all of a sudden was experiencing the rapture of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It was just an amazing uh, experience in that. And then I woke up and I said, ah, I'm so disappointed. It was just a dream. But we love to dream about good stuff. Just this past week on my Facebook page, a memory popped up from uh, just over a decade ago, uh, about my son Eli. My, my son Eli is 13 now, but when he was a toddler, the boy was obsessed with vacuum cleaners. I mean, just obsessed with them. Most toddlers, when you go to Walmart, which aisle do toddlers want to go to? The toy aisle, right? Not Eli when he was a toddler. Now, he's outgrown this now. But when he was two, three years old, you had to take the boy by the vacuum aisle so that he could check out all of the vacuums. Well, he loved vacuums so much that one day during a nap, he was dreaming about vacuums. He was talking to himself in the dream. And he was saying all, and this this was the Facebook memory that popped up because I I had to put it on Facebook because it was so cute. But he was dreaming, talking to himself, Eli, vacuum grab it. Yeah, that's what he said. I could just picture in his dream what he was dreaming right there in Walmart, walking down that aisle with all of those vacuums that he could just grab and run with. It was so cute. Anybody here in their family have somebody that talks in their sleep? Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that. But we don't just dream about good things. We also dream about bad things. I mean, I've had dreams before where they were so powerful and so sad that I literally woke up weeping. Right? We, we wake up and pray in the, after those moments that, that, that what we just dreamed about would never happen. We're so glad that it was just a dream. Like the time that I dreamed about one of my children dying. I mean, I remember, I remember it feeling so real and I was so helpless to stop what was happening. And I was so heartbroken, just sobbing with tears when I woke up. It was horrible. So we've all had dreams before. All right. Now, whether they were good dreams or bad dreams, they were vivid. They were audio-visual experiences in our mind while we were asleep. Now, the Bible, it certainly talks about dreams, but the Bible also talks about another category that, that's a similar experience to a dream. But this happens when a person is awake. It's what the Bible calls a vision. Now, a vision is just like a dream in, the, in this regard, right? It's a vivid audio-visual experience in the mind of a person, but the person is awake, all right? And this is where God gives a supernatural glimpse into a spiritual reality. God, in one sense, reveals to us 
what is really real. And as we continue in our series that we're calling Close Encounters, where we're kind of walking through some of the theophanies of God. Theo, theo meaning God in Greek, and, and epiphany, theophany. Epiphany is appearance. So appearances of God, moments where God appeared and people closely encountered him and they were changed forever because of that encounter. Now today, we're going to move into a special category of theophany that we would call a theophonic vision. A theophonic vision. You see, in a typical theophany, as we've been walking through this series, is when God manifests himself in a physical world. People encounter God in the physical world. They see him with their physical eyes. They hear him with their physical ears. Just like with Abraham at the Oaks as we went through that. Both Abraham and Sarah saw him and they heard him and they talked to him and he ate. God physically manifested himself with Jacob at the ford. Jacob literally wrestled with God. God physically manifested himself with Job in the whirlwind. There was a real whirlwind. Physically with Moses, when Moses was looking at that burning bush, it was literally a bush on fire without being consumed. It was a physical manifestation. And then last week, Elijah at the cave physical manifestation. But in today's text, this encounter, this close encounter is not a physical theophany, but rather a theophanic vision where God supernaturally manifests himself by giving the prophet Isaiah a vivid, close encounter with God in Isaiah's mind. And just like a physical theophany was powerful and life-changing, this theophanic vision was powerful and life-changing as well. The title of today's message is Isaiah in the throne room. Isaiah in the throne room. I, I want to invite you to look at our text today. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is our text today. And I want to invite you to stand this morning to honor the reading of God's word. As you stand, God, just know this. God's word is 100% true and 100% authoritative for our lives. What God's word says, God says. And what God's word says to do and to believe, we are to do and believe. Here's what the word of God says. Isaiah 6, verse 1, going through, down through the 8th. The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom Shall I send and who 
will go for us. And then I said, here I am, send me. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you asking God that you would help us to understand your word, God. We don't want to simply understand and learn your word, God, but we want to live this out. And so help us to just bring out truths, God, that we might live in light of your word. But God, we don't want to just learn your word and live your word. We really, honestly, God, we want to love your word. And so help us to do that. God, if we've not acquired a taste yet for your word, God, would you help us to do that? Would you just by your Holy Spirit give us a hunger and thirst and a taste for your word that would be sweeter than honey, even sweeter than honey in the honeycomb today. Father, I also want to pray for anybody under the sound of my voice who's never turned from sin and trusted Jesus. I'm so thankful for Zoe's testimony and witness this morning as she told this entire congregation and anybody who's watching online, Lord, that Jesus is worthy of our lives. He is our hope. And so God, if there's anybody here today who's never turned and trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, would you touch their heart and call them to salvation today? And I pray that they would say yes. Be with us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat if you would. So we read right here in Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord setting upon a throne. Again, God is giving Isaiah here a theophanic vision. This is not a physical close encounter, but a life-changing close encounter nonetheless with God. So today I want to point you to three life-changing truths from Isaiah's close encounter with God. Just three life-changing truths. If you and I will grasp these three truths, our life will be changed like Isaiah's. And here's the first truth. It's this. God is awesome and holy. Amen? God is indeed awesome. Awesome and holy. I know we use that word a lot, dude. That was awesome, man. That was, you know, we just throw it around, you know. No, no, no. God is truly the definition. He's the epitome of awesome. This vision from God here to Isaiah to us is meant to overwhelm us. It's meant to amaze us. Now, no doubt, make make no, make no, um, don't misunderstand. This is a mediated vision. It is not the fullness of God. It's not. The Bible says that no one has ever seen the fullness of God and lived. I don't know if like, if if they were to see it, they would just go and blow up. I don't know if they would just melt. I don't know what would happen if they saw the fullness of God. But this is a mediated vision. This is a, a partial vision, a vision of God that Isaiah could handle and that you and I could handle. But nevertheless, it is an astounding vision of God. Isaiah says that he saw God in this theophanic vision as a great king. Now, how do we know that? We know that because the Lord here is sitting on a throne, just like kings do, right? The throne, uh, it represents, it symbolizes a king's royalty, his power, his authority and sovereignty. And this throne is high, it says, and lifted up, likely at the top of several steps on a Elevated platform with steps going up to it. You ever wonder why people call kings and queens your highness? One of the reasons they call them that, of course, is their elevated status in that society and in that culture. And to symbolize their elevated status, they would elevate their thrones, that they could be high above the people who were their 
subjects. And in this vision, God is high and lifted up on his throne. And the Bible goes further to say that the throne, uh, that the, the, the train of his royal robe, it filled the temple. Now, when you hear the word train, especially maybe you young folks here, you think of the thing that goes down the tracks, choo-choo, right? When we hear train, but the train of a robe is just the extension of the robe. As the robe comes down, it just continues all the way to the floor and then flows out back behind the king. Now, you and I, we're not used to seeing kings and queens in robes and all that stuff. We're not even used to seeing kings and queens, right? Our president and vice president, they wear suits and things like that. You know, they, uh, you know, they, they don't wear robes and things of royalty. But we see this all the time when we come to a wedding. Maybe even some of the ladies in this room, you had a wedding dress that had a long train with it. Maybe you young folks, you've been there before and you've seen that bride come down and as she's walking down the, the aisle there, you see her dress following her way back there. And sometimes the dress, the train is so long to the dress that they even have not just ring bearers in the wedding, but they'll even have train bearers, little boys or little girls helping to carry the train of the bride down the aisle. That's the image here, but this is a king. This is the king. And here's the rule of thumb when it comes to trains. The longer the train, the higher in society that person was seen to be. More, they were seen as more important. They were seen as, as, as more wealthy. And here the Bible says that this train of this king of the Lord was so long that it filled the temple. Now, as you just picture in your mind here, the, the king sitting on the throne and, and the train being so long that it comes all the way down from that elevated place. And, and I don't take this to mean that the train was all there was in the room, like you had to wade through train to get through it. No, no. I think what it means is it came down and it covered the entire floor of the temple here in heaven. Guys, this is not just a regular king. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is a vision of almighty God. And it's an awesome vision. But the vision is heightened, not just by what Isaiah sees concerning the Lord himself, but also by the creatures that are in this throne room as well. Look at verse 2. Isaiah 6, 2 says, Above him, that's the Lord, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, the seraphim are a type of angel. The, the word seraphim itself literally means in Hebrew, burning ones. Burning ones. Just picture that in your brain for a moment. A creature that is on fire, flaming fire, yet not consumed. And they seem to have a human appearance with a face and two hands and two feet. But unlike humans, the Bible says that they had six wings. Two of them they used to fly. Two of them they used to cover their face. And two of them they used to cover their feet. Now we get the face thing like, oh, you know, the, the glory of God was too great for them. We get them covering their face, but why their feet? Well, both of those things are likely a posture of humility before this great king. They're saying, we 
are not worthy to be in your presence. You see, the angels, they know firsthand the awesomeness of God. They themselves are awesome. Now, no doubt about it, angels are awesome, especially these seraphim, these burning angels. But how much more awesome must God be if these awesome angels were awed by God? God is awesome. They not only fly, the Bible says, they also speak. Look at Isaiah 6.3 here to help us understand what they were saying. It says, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, holy is one of those words that Christians throw around, right? We say that because it's a Bible word. If you were to ask us, what does holy mean? We may struggle to define it. We just say, well, holy means holy. <laughs> you know, we say things like that, right? But holy means two things. First, it means this. It means to be perfect. To say that God is holy is to say that God is perfect in all of his attributes. He's perfect in power. Perfect in morality. In other words, he is perfectly righteous. He's perfect in his actions. He always does what is righteous. But God's holiness goes further than that, than merely his perfection. Because second, holiness means, to say that God is holy means that he is separate. That he's set apart from the world. In other words, guys, God is other than us. He is other than us. Although God is imminent, God is close to us. He's here with us. And he shares attributes with us. He is still transcendent, which means he is different from us as well. There are things about God that we do not share with him. He is different than us in his essence. He's distinct from us. He's not just sinless. It's that he's separate from everything that is sinful, utterly removed from this profane world. And notice here that the seraphim, when they say that God is holy, they don't just say that he's holy. They don't just say it once. They don't just say it twice. But they say it three times. He is holy, holy, holy. Holy, just as we sang a moment ago as a congregation. Now, where you and I, when we express what is better and what is best, when we talk about superlatives, we like to add the word ER or the, the, the ending ER or EST, right? We say that is cooler or coolest or prettier or prettiest, right? That's how we do that. Not in the Hebrew culture. In the Hebrew culture, they show superlative by multiplying the number of times they say it. They repeat what they're saying. And so where we would say that is the coolest, they would say, boy, that was cool, cool, cool. Or they would say, man, she is pretty. And then they would say, she is pretty, pretty, pretty. But here with God, in this case, he's not just holy. He is holy Holy, holy, God is holy to the highest level. That's what that means. 
His holiness is on another level. And it's a level that no one shares with him. His holiness alone is reason for you and me to worship God. He is holy and he is awesome. The Bible says that all of the earth is filled with his glory, which is the radiance of his awesomeness and holiness. As the seraphim were saying these things to one another, the Bible says that the entire temple was shaking the walls and the floors and the ceilings. And there was smoke filling, uh, filling the room. What an experience. When you think about an encounter with God, what an encounter. Isaiah was in the very throne room of God, in the very presence of God. And he saw firsthand how awesome and holy God is. I wonder this morning, just a thought of reflection for a moment. Do you recognize how holy and awesome God is? Is that where your heart is? When you think about God, do you think of him as high and lifted up? Do you think of him as perfect, morally perfect in his attributes? perfect in all that he does and all that he says? And do you see him as holy, one who is set apart and different from you and me, yet wants to know you and me? Isn't that amazing? Beloved, I pray that you would see God as he really is. That's the first life-changing truth from this close encounter is that God is awesome and holy. Here's the second truth. The first one was about God. The second one is about you and me. If God is awesome and holy, what are we? Well, you and I are small and unholy. We are small and unholy. As Isaiah is having this close encounter with God, I mean, I have to think that his heart is overwhelmed. Like he can't believe what he's seeing. He's full of joy. He's full of wonder. He's full of amazement. He's like, wow, mind blown. God is awesome. But in a moment of self-reflection, after that kind of sinks in for a moment, that awe immediately turns to humility and woe. You see, he's in the very presence of Almighty God. In a flash, I believe that he realized how small he was. Not that he was insignificant. Don't misunderstand me. God never wants you and me to, to think that we're insignificant, but we certainly are to be humbled. And what place to better be humbled than the very presence of God? You ever go to the Grand Canyon? When you go to the Grand Canyon or just picture any place that you've been that's just absolutely massive. Christy and I had the opportunity in 2007 to go to the Grand Canyon and it was a spiritual experience. And here's what I mean by that. When I walked up to the edge of that thing, as close as I would get, you know me, afraid of heights, right? So as I peered off over the edge, as I looked over that big, it's just a big ditch. That's all it is. It's just a big drainage ditch, but it's massive. And as you look across, you can barely see the other side. This, the other side is, is so far away that it's blurry. And you look down and there's that mighty Colorado River. 
and the Colorado River right down there is, it, it doesn't even look like a stream. It looks like a, a trickle. It's no bigger than the end of your finger as it goes down through there. And you have this moment when you're standing there where you go, I am so tiny. I am so small. The truth of the matter is, guys, in our culture, you and I are pushed to make ourselves seem big, to make ourselves seem important, to make ourselves to be better at least than somebody else. But in this moment, I have to believe that when Isaiah was in the direct presence of God, in the greatness of God, in that moment, he realized how small he is. He was humbled. He was brought low. But not only did he realize how small he was, I, I believe that he also realized, according to the word of God here, how sinful he was. Look at verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost from a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, Isaiah was cool, thought well of himself until he got the presence of someone who was greater than him, who was holy. One of my favorite sayings to say is that you and I look holy, holy, holy next to the hillside strangler. But when you come into the presence of God, it is clear that we are not holy. And Isaiah, it became painfully obvious to him here. Painfully obvious. He understood what Romans 3.23 tells us, where it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It was clear to him in that moment that he was indeed short of the glory of God. He understood his unholiness and it scared him to death. In fact, he cried out, woe, W-O-E, woe is me. In other words, I'm lost, I'm undone, I'm doomed. Because indeed, guys, he was a man of unclean lips. And these unclean lips simply bore the fruit of an unclean heart and an unclean soul. What an uncomfortable situation it is for unholiness to come into the presence of holiness, complete, perfected holiness. And so Isaiah was at once convicted of his sin and he began to confess his sin. But listen to me very carefully here, beloved. Until you begin to confess your sin and recognize your sin like Isaiah did here, there's no hope for you. Right? If you want to see your life change, you want to see your, your eternity change, that will never happen until you realize that you are unholy, that you are a sinner because a sinner can't be saved until they realize and agree that they are indeed lost and need saving. Now, there are some of you who walked in the room today. Praise God that you're here, but you have never been saved. You never turned from sin and trusted Jesus. Maybe that's the reason that you've never, you, you just never understood that you were lost. You, you've never understood that you needed a Savior. So listen to me really closely. The Bible demonstrates to us through the Ten Commandments that you and I have indeed fallen short of God's glory. We often think of the Ten Commandments as 
a, a ladder that we can climb to heaven. If we can just do these, we'll work our way to heaven. But that's not what they were given for. They were given as a measuring tape to show you and me that we've fallen short. You see, in those Ten Commandments, God commands us to worship nobody but Him. That we love nothing more than God. But guess what? We've broken that. I've broken that. God commands us to always tell the truth. Broken that one. God commands us to keep our thoughts and our bodies sexually pure. We've broken that. God commands us to obey our parents, to honor our parents. We've broken that. I mean, I could go on and on with all 10, but surely if you've broken one, the Bible says you've broken them all. You and I are guilty based on what we've done. And because God is holy, God cannot have a relationship with something or someone who is unholy. God must remain, the Bible says, separate from us. And because God is holy, he must not only be separate, but because he's a good God, he must punish that sin. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Death on this earth and a living death forevermore in hell. Because that's what you and I deserve. And you may come in this morning and you may think that your good outweighs your bad. But I want to say to you, beloved, if that's you, if you were to say, Ben, listen, you don't know how many good things I've done. Yes, I've done some bad, but I think that my good outweighs my bad. I want to say to you, you're missing the point. The question is not, does your good outweigh your bad? Here's the question. Do you have any bad? Because if you have any bad, you are unholy. You are guilty. Even one sin is an infinite, against, uh, is an infinite uh, offense against our, our holy God. And you can't pay it back. You can't earn it back. And so based on what you and I have done, we must echo Isaiah and say, woe is me, for I'm lost. Although I think that I'm big and holy, I'm actually small and unholy. That's the second life-changing truth from this close encounter. Here's the final one this morning, and this is beautiful. God's grace is the only way to make me holy and fit for his service. You see, God, when Isaiah recognized that he was not holy, when he said, woe is me, I'm unclean and I hang out with unclean people. God didn't say, get out of here, I'm done with you. No, no, no. God extends grace. God doesn't say, well, Isaiah, just get better. You can do this, Isaiah. Come on, man, get yourself together here. Now, the truth of the matter is that there's nothing that Isaiah could do to change his unholiness. Guys, listen to me. Only God can wash away our sin. And that's what we see here. We see God's grace be extended to Isaiah, the sinner here. And here's the good news. Look, look at the good news here, verse 6 and 7. Look what God does here for Isaiah. God steps in and, and, and does something. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, it says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God acted in this moment 
with grace. He acted with mercy toward Isaiah. He cleansed Isaiah of his sins. He atoned for his sins. Guys, God's grace and mercy were Isaiah's only hope. Only God could make Isaiah holy. And I want to say this morning, guys, that's true for Isaiah and that's true for you and me. I want to say to you this morning that God's grace and mercy are your only hope. And that grace and mercy is extended to everybody in this room. Through Jesus Christ, who lived that holy life that you and I cannot live. And died the death that you and I deserved on that cross. And then rose again on that third day as proof that every person who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Every person who repents and believes on Jesus will be cleansed, forgiven, and atoned for. Now, many of us in this room, we've already experienced this. I'm so thankful for that. But some of you have not yet. And I'm thankful today that God has given you another chance. That God has given you more breath in your lungs that you might turn and trust Jesus and be saved. So what are you to do? You're to do what Isaiah did. Cry out to God. Confess your sin to him. Call out to God even now in prayer. You don't have to wait for the invitation. Even right now, if God is speaking to your heart about how you need to be cleansed from your sin, call out to God right now in prayer. Right there in your mind, call out to God. Let God know that you know that you're a sinner. And let God know that you believe Jesus is the one who lived, died, and rose again to save you. He's the Son of God sent to save you from your sins. And then finally, ask Him to be your Savior. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to be Lord of your life. I'm so thankful that God has provided forgiveness and atonement. I was 17 years old when I experienced this. When I turned from sin and trusted Christ as my Savior. And I'm now 42. Been walking with the Lord now, what, 25 years. And it's been a blessing. But here's the amazing thing. God doesn't just want to save you. (laughs) He wants to put you in to service where you can make a difference in this world for him. You see, after being forgiven and being saved, he, in that process, he, he makes you fit for his service. I mean, isn't that mind-blowing? This one who used to be his enemy is now in his service. Guys, God is good. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Immediately when Isaiah hears the opportunity to go serve God, (laughs) he doesn't back away. He immediately says, I'll do it. I'll do it. Beloved, isn't that the willing heart demonstrated here in Isaiah that every one of us should have? Isn't that the only proper response to being forgiven and, and, and saved? Could there be any other right response when God calls on us whom he has saved other than Yeah, I'll go. I'll do it, God. Send me, guys. That's exactly how we should respond. Let me go a step further. That's exactly what grace, what God's grace demands of you 
And when I say demands, I don't mean it in this way. It's not because you have to, but it's because you get to, because of the gratitude and because of the joy that God has bestowed on your life through that salvation. It is a joy and a privilege to go serve him. And Isaiah's ministry was not going to be easy. Just go a few more verses and you'll see how hard Isaiah's ministry was. But nevertheless, when you're in the service of the king, (laughs) praise God, that is a life well lived. And here's the amazing thing. This theophanic vision here was amazing in and of itself. But when that angel took that coal from that altar and touched it to Isaiah's lips, it was just pointing to something that was greater to come. When Jesus Christ came, the ultimate theophany, right? The ultimate theophany, the ultimate appearing of God is Jesus, God in the flesh, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. That's the greatest theophany ever. And not only does he take away our sins in the moment, he takes away our sins forever. Everyone who will turn from sin and call on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Here's my final prayer this morning. May you encounter God and never be the same. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. 
Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.